Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, educating, empowering, and connecting Christians to stand on God's Word and truth. A man who won't stand up for his own principles is not really a man at all. Get involved by emailing comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. You Handle the truth. Now, here's David Fiorazzo. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Stand Up for the Truth. We thank you so much for tuning in. A very uh, unique show, I believe, today. And I've got an introduction to share after I open up in prayer. And I've got a scripture I also want to share. And in fact, let me do that right now. Um, Psalm 86, in verse, starting in verse um, 6, it says, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. And give heed to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your ways, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and will glorify your name forever, for your loving kindness towards me is great. Father in heaven, give us undivided hearts that we may unite with our brothers and sisters in Christ and be of one spirit with you, Jesus, that we may fear you and do the work that you've called us to do individually and as a church, your bride. Help us, Father, walk in your truth. Help us to know you, help us to know you better, and help us to be able to explain the good news of Jesus Christ to those who need to hear some hope. We ask that you would help us do that today. Lead by your Holy Spirit. Give us wisdom. Give us hearts of compassion and humility for those hurting that are all around us. And help us never be too busy to allow ourselves to be interrupted by your will for our lives. Make us aware of divine appointments, Lord, and give us encouragement and the hope that we need today, right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the last few weeks on Stand Up For The Truth, we've, we've talked about false teachings, witchcraft and the occult, one world government, the moral decay and decline in our culture, the education system in America, the LGBTQ agenda, attacks on religious freedom, and the apathy of a church that is conforming to this world. So I've been praying about this today, and I'm going to just be honest with you guys. The Lord's leading me to remind us, and I need this maybe more than you do, of the blessed hope we have in Christ and the assurance, not only of salvation, but of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But first, on a personal note, I can use your prayers. Um, I woke up Wednesday with uh, some tightness in my chest and was reminded I needed to once again cast my cares and burdens and anxieties over on the Lord. Um, I had a heart procedure a year and a half ago, which helped, and uh, I no longer take any meds, so I've been good. And then these symptoms come back, and uh, not, you know, as severely, but it can be concerning. So during stressful times, we can kind of lose track of things, and our health sometimes suffers. So keep all of us in prayer for that, for good health. But as you know, whenever you want to do God's work, whenever you want to, as a Christian, take a stand, there will be opposition, trials, testing, much spiritual warfare, and I just want to open up my heart a little bit to you. And prior to sharing a few positive news stories, in, including football, and then a study today in God's Word and on the evidence we have for the reality of the resurrection in Christ. So just briefly, this year has been one of the hardest and possibly the busiest in my entire life, and that's saying a lot uh, at my age. Uh, my wife, Rosanna, has had kidney stone surgery, during which they found some cancer in her bladder. They removed a small tumor, and she gets checked now every six months. Keep her in your prayers. Uh, her dad died uh, in the middle of the year, and a few months after that, she had an accident 
where she broke her collarbone. Our youngest dog has had a rare bacterial infection, which causes her foot to bleed in, in that area, her ankle there. It's been going on for three years or more. We're taking her to a vet for a treatment every week. We finally found one that seems to be helping, a vet and a treatment. We've both had car repairs, sleeping issues. I had a tooth pulled, which then became infected, days before I was scheduled to and preached <laughs> at our church. Now, there are seasons in life all of us go through when um, circumstances and Spiritual warfare increase. We're living in this world. We have these temporary bodies, and there are circumstances around us outside of our control. So it's almost an obvious level when so many things happen at once, and particularly for us personally, in the same year a lot has happened. And you know the enemy shoots his fiery darts. We did a study on Ephesians 6 a few weeks ago. He tries to discourage us. He tries to get us to doubt, but we will not. So keep your pastors and your favorite ministry leaders in prayer. Keep this ministry in prayer. God's will be done. Pray for the wisdom for the board of directors here at the station. A lot of decisions to be made after Mike's retirement. But here, as far as not only my wife and I personally, but here at this station in this ministry, we will not be silent. No retreat. No regrets. And brothers and sisters in Christ listening right now, let's lock arms and fight this battle, onward Christian soldiers. So today, a few encouraging stories, and then we'll jump into God's Word. This one is possibly the feel-good story of the week or the month. A high school football player, um, this story went viral after he prayed for an opponent, someone on the, the other team, whose mom is battling cancer. And this picture went all over the place. You've probably seen reports on it. Uh, the photo of the two high school athletes after the game, kneeling on the field, praying together. It took place in Sherman, Texas, and it sure did uh, touch a lot of hearts across the country. Gage Smith is a wide receiver at Sherman High School. He made a lot of key plays in the game, and his team won Friday night. After that, he took a knee to pray with his opponent. His name is Ty Jordan, whose mother is battling cancer. And he told KXII-TV, I just had a moment with him praying over him, his mom, and his family. When you're playing the game, you're playing to win, and the other team is the enemy. But afterward, you still have respect for the other opponent. Football brings people together in so many different ways, and that was just one example of that tonight. He said he just wanted to show him compassion. And following the game, uh, Jordan's aunt posted the touching image to her Facebook where it went viral. Um, it's been shared more than... At the time of this, this was a couple of days ago, and I, I printed this out, 150,000 shares so far. Uh, and Jordan's aunt wrote, uh, this melts my heart. Um, so the football coach at Sherman High School said, uh, t- told the radio station that Smith is a leader on and off the field. And Martinez said his wife took the photo and shared it with Smith's mom, who then passed it on to Jordan's family. He said, it's a pretty special, that kind of, everybody gets to see what's really going on. He said, that's the type of kid he is all the time, not just in front of the cameras. And that's an example for us as Christians. You never know who's watching. People need prayer all around us. And this is on a football field. I I don't know if the Freedom From Religion Foundation is going to get involved in this because they prayed publicly. Now that picture is going viral. But isn't this about loving your neighbor? Isn't this just something that should come naturally to us. And I hope we can be more sensitive to the people that God brings into our lives. Um, I did an afternoon show in Sherman, Texas, back in the early 80s. And it's right on the Oklahoma border, uh, Sherman-Denison area. And uh, high school football in those areas is a Friday night religion. (laughs) Okay. And so it's uh, it's it's still been a struggle because of the um, cheerleaders and everything doing Bible verses and stuff like that. I don't know if you've been keeping up with that over the last few years, mm-hmm. but they're mm-hmm. really coming down there in the South area, especially in Texas, like that. And so it, it is a blessing. I remember it was home of Folgers Coffee, and every morning when I'd go for a run, I got to smell that coffee. But it, it is I pr- praise God for social media like that because I'm sure that happens all the time. It really does. But yes. I mean, do you sometimes when you see something like you go, oh, I got to get a picture of that. Yeah. And and uh, 
because uh, I'm sure you're about to even segue into this other story because there's another great story, a uh, football story that just came out. As yeah, well. this, you know, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior and my God and my King and my returning Redeemer. But Nick Foles and Carson Wentz, these guys are my heroes in this temporary life. Um, I love it when men of God stand up for Christ and are unashamed of the gospel. You know, if you don't know, Nick Foles um, used to play with the Philadelphia Eagles a few years ago. He won the Super Bowl, um, and he got traded to the Jacksonville Jaguars. <laughs> first game of the season, I think, if, if not the second. First game of the season, he's up there, he's doing great, having a great game. He throws a touchdown pass, and on that play, a big 300-pound lineman tackled him and fell on him with his weight, broke Nick Foles' collarbone. That was... Eight weeks ago, approximately, he had surgery, um, rehabilitation, physical therapy, and he's back this Sunday. He plays against his former um, offensive coordinator, Frank Reich, who now, he's a Christian. He's always been a Christian, strong believer. He's coaching the Indianapolis Colts. So Nick Foles gets to play against his old offensive coordinator, but I wanted to share this story because in a press press conference conference (laughs) yesterday for the NFL, man, Nick Foles preached a little mini-sermon, and I just want to share this man of God. By the way, when they were with Philadelphia, they were having Bible studies. They were Baptisms. Dis- they were discipling. In the recovery room pool, and I wrote about this a couple of years ago on our blog, they were baptizing players right. that were coming to Christ and receiving the gospel. They had How did they do that? Well, they've got some strong, they had a core of believers and strong players who now Many of them are spread out to other teams, but there's still like a handful in Philadelphia. But they had a phenomenal chaplain, a team chaplain. So Nick said, when I felt this thing break, his collarbone, opening week, I was going into the locker room and I just realized, God, this wasn't exactly what I was thinking when I came to Jacksonville. Obviously, you come here and you want to create a culture and impact people. But I said, God, if this is the journey you want me on, I'm going to glorify you in every action, good or bad. Nick Foles said, I still could have joy in an injury. And people hear that and say, that's crazy. But when you believe in Jesus and you go out there and play, it changes your heart. Foles is one of the rare, very rare, outspoken Christians in the NFL. And when he referenced his Super Bowl win, he said, when I hoisted the Lombardi Trophy a few years ago, The reason I was smiling was because my faith was in Christ. In that moment, I realized I didn't need that. I didn't need that trophy to define who I was because it was already in Christ, he said, his identity. And he wrapped it up by saying, uh, we tend to make so much about us as human beings. We tend to make it about us as athletes. It's not about us. And he said, you'll be lonely and, and miserable if you do make it about you. He said, but from a spiritual perspective, from my heart, I've been able to grow as a human being to where I feel like I'm in a better situation here as a person than I was before the injury because of the trial I just went under. And I know that's a sermon in itself, but that's how I go through life. And the good Lord's been there, Foles said. It's not always about prosperity. I don't believe in the prosperity gospel. I believe if you read the word of God and you understand it, there are trials along the way that equip your heart to be who you are. This man needs our encouragement and our prayers and the, the other rare individuals, and there are not many that speak out in any professional sport, but Nick Foles is going to be a pastor after he gets out of football. God willing, that's his plan. We'll see what God's plan is, but I thought you guys would be encouraged by two positive stories of faith and of just being publicly unashamed of the gospel. Um, you got to get him on the show. Oh, I would love to. <laughs> By the way, if anyone has a contact for Nick Foles, Carson Wentz, and other Christian players. I got, I, I got Andy Reid's phone number. Maybe we can go that route. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, so right now, let's jump into the Word of God. And Father, open up our hearts and help us receive what we need to receive today, whether that be hope, encouragement, truth, um, Just give us what we need to be able to defend the truth, share the gospel, and to be encouraged in our own faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Holy Spirit, you are welcome. J. Warner Wallace is a cold case homicide detective and a former atheist. 
He's now an author and professor of apologetics at Biola University in California. He said this, I'm not a Christian because it serves my own selfish purposes. I'm not a Christian because it works for me. I had a life prior to Christianity that seemed to be working just fine, and my life as a Christian hasn't always been easy. I'm a Christian because it's true. I'm a Christian because I want to live in a way that reflects the truth. I'm a Christian because my high regard for the truth leaves me no alternative. Since the resurrection of Jesus is pivotal to Christianity, and there would be no faith without that, investigating the claims and and proving the resurrection is very important. The Bible states, believers have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. And that's what I want to encourage you with today, the hope from God's Word. Hebrews 6.19 says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner entered for us, even Jesus. This is referring to the hope for the fulfillment of God's promise of salvation and our future glorification. The anchor, this hope is an anchor to our soul, that symbolizes keeping believers secure during storms, during times of trouble. The veil was the curtain that blocked the entrance to the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, where the priest offered sacrifices for the sins of the people. The tearing of that veil signified that the way into God's presence was now open to everyone. It was a 30-foot-tall, 4-inch-thick, heavy curtain, and it tore from top to bottom. Why was that mentioned in God's Word? Matthew 27, 50, 51, after the crucifixion, immediately, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Verse 51, then, Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Why did it tear from top to bottom? 30 feet tall, 4 inch thick. God did it, not man. It was finished. Christianity stands or falls with the resurrection. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 17, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. We wouldn't be resurrected either, and we would have no hope if Christ was not risen. So, what was the disciples' motivation? Christianity had very humble beginnings. Think about it. If if there was no resurrection, if they were making it up, like some people say, well, that was just a story, that's a fable, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. What was their motivation? And all the martyrs and all the early saints, they had no money, no proven leaders, no technological tools for promoting the gospel. The whole message itself, this thing, this way, Christianity faced enormous obstacles. It was brand new. It taught bold truths that were incredible and hard to believe. It was the subject, it was subject to the most intense hatred and persecution. <laughs> you might be killed if you believe this and share this. Where do I sign up? Right? So Why have so many then, disciples, followers of Christ, martyrs, through the centuries, die for their faith instead of deny Jesus? If it was a lie, why not recant before they kill you? Because it was true. They believed it from the core of their very beings. And think about this. Anyone could have examined that empty tomb. And many, 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 Probably did. Wouldn't you, if you were living in Jerusalem at that time, if you were visiting Jerusalem at that time, a lot of people heard about this. Oh my goodness, what? The, he, he, he said he was going to rise from the dead, and now the tomb is empty? Wow, let, let me, let's go check that out. Let's go see for ourselves. Make no mistake, friends, both believers and non-believers went to that tomb of Christ to look for the body. And those that hated him enough to kill him and crucify him, both the Jews and the Romans, 
<laughs> all that the enemies of God had to do to squelch the prophecy and this new religion, this new way, all they needed to do is produce the corpse of Jesus. Stop the story from spreading. This would have done away with Christianity, but it never happened. Why? Because the resurrection is real. More on this on Stand Up For The Truth when we come back. If you want more info on the topics of today's show, then visit StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, back to David Fiorazzo. We're talking about the resurrection. Have hope. Be assured of your salvation, friends. It is true. There's enough evidence that demands a verdict and should be examined. And before we get to our main text from 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel, um, let's look at some extra biblical sources, meaning sources that are outside of the Word of God, outside of the Bible, because you can find information there about what was going on at that time. According to a man named Thallus, one of several non-biblical pagan historians writing about that time, there was a darkness during the day followed by an earthquake that occurred at the point of Jesus' death during his crucifixion. So where did you hear that before? The Gospels talk about you know, it was uh, dark from noon until 3 p.m., three hours of total darkness, blackness during the day at noon hour. And, of course, the earthquake. So you've got a source outside the Bible now testifying to the accuracy of that. Roman historian, a man named Suetonius, wrote about the new levels of punishment that Nero was inflicting on Christians and described the fact Jesus had an immediate impact on his followers, empowering them to die courageously for what they knew to be true. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say Suetonius believed the gospel. It says this is the fruit of that man's life and ministry. These people are committed to the gospel. They really believe it's true. Jewish historian Josephus lived in the first century and writes about Jesus in more detail than any other non-biblical source. And one more, uh, the second century Roman historian Tacitus. He confirms that Christianity was founded by a man named Christus, Christ, whom he said was, quote, put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea, in the reign of Tiberius. And guess what? That's what the gospel says. Jesus was on trial before the high priest Caiaphas and then was taken to Pilate. The tomb of Caiaphas, of his family, was discovered in Jerusalem in 1990. It was discovered. Inside were the very bones of the infamous high priest mentioned in the Gospels. This, that's archaeology. Um, as for Pontius Pilate, a lot of people for centuries said, oh, he never existed, that's a phony name, that's an imaginary person, whatever. Oh, it's inconvenient again for them. In 1961, a first-century inscription was discovered at Caesarea, confirming that he was indeed procurator of Judea from 26 to 36 AD. Christianity was a threat to religious leaders in Jerusalem. Christianity was also a threat to the Romans, right? They didn't want a rebellion or some revolution or something like that. Why do you think the Romans and the Jews did not refute or disprove the resurrection and stop this movement before it began? Here's another key point of evidence. The most powerful thing in a court of law is eyewitness testimony. Hundreds, if not thousands of eyewitnesses saw miracles Jesus did, and most importantly, they saw the risen Christ after the resurrection. So let's look at the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, first eight verses. Now, this was a letter that was written sometime around 50 AD, which is less than 20 years after Jesus' resurrection. Some say between 15 and 20 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and least of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So, Josephus testifies that James—this is an interesting point. James, think about this, the brother of Jesus, right? He ended up to be the leader of the Jerusalem Council, a pillar in the early church. He was executed for his faith. But think about James. Talk about an amazing conversion and transformation. This man was a skeptic, the Gospels tell us, weeks prior to the resurrection. And then he's mentioned in the book of Acts as a pillar in the early church. How do you explain this transformation? Well, we just read it. Did you hear? In verse 7, when Jesus was resurrected and he appeared to people, verse 7 says, Then he appeared to James. Wow! And by the way, Paul also writes parenthetically there, he said, after he appeared to 500 brethren at once, most of, them, most of them were still alive. Most, he says. He said, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. That means some have died. But most of them were still alive during the time that Paul wrote this letter. Many, if, if there were that many people and the resurrection wasn't true, why would you write that? And then he names names, too. We'll get to that in a minute. So to give you an idea of the magnitude of the case for Christ and why the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Romans could not refute it, well, let's talk about a couple of these appearances, a couple of these people that Jesus actually appeared to according to the Gospels. Um, First of all, people who saw Jesus at the cross. These are eyewitnesses that saw him be crucified and died. We know there are many more than this, but these are the ones that are mentioned. Jesus, his mother, his aunt, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, Mary Magdalene, and the Apostle John. So then there's the, at the tomb of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich, wealthy man, Nicodemus, both disciples of Jesus, Nicodemus was secretly, before the soldiers closed it and sealed it up, uh, Mark says, in Mark 15, 47, it says, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. How about Resurrection Sunday? Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, brought spices to anoint him for burial. And then, of course, the tomb was empty. That was Mark 16, 1. How about in the upper room? At least two times, which we have documented in the Gospels. Uh, One time, Thomas touched his side, reached into his side. Remember, he said the first time Jesus appeared to them, Thomas wasn't there, and he said, I will not believe unless I touch his hand or see his his body and whatever, and and then uh, he finally did. Jesus appeared to him. He said, touch, reach your hand in here. What was his expression? Thomas probably fell on his face, but his expression was, my Lord and my God. And that was in the upper room. How about the two on the road to Emmaus? Two disciples walked with Jesus. Cleopas was mentioned by name. Boy, you better be right if you're going to name names because people are going to investigate and ask those people, did you really see this? How about uh, um, when they were eating with him? Another example. How about uh, Jesus appearing to the disciples while they were fishing along the shore? Didymus and Nathaniel. And then, um, of course, at Jesus' ascension in the book of Acts, chapter 1, 9 through 11, which we'll read in a few minutes. All this to say, friends, it would be different if you said, well, there's only one man that saw Jesus raised from the dead, and he, he believes it's true, but we can't find him anywhere. <laughs> he doesn't exist. I, I, we, I, we think he lived in Jerusalem. There's only one. No, these are hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses that were actually around when some of the New Testament documents were written. So Luke 24 mentions Mary, Joanna, and the other women. Who else was, who was that? Who, who and how many women? Uh, re, they returned from the tomb and told the apostles what they saw. Jesus was alive. What a blessing to have Luke's detailed, inspiring, meticulous, journalistic account of Jesus. And so here, let's talk about the women now for a minute. Think about that culture. We're thinking in American terms. Think about 
those terms in, in the days of Jesus in Jerusalem at that time. <laughs> Don't you think the gospel writers could have come up with a better story than the first people to see Jesus alive after he was raised from the dead were women? Don't you think they, if they wanted to establish their case, they could have made their heroes look a little better? Peter denies Jesus. James and John want to call down lightning from heaven. Judas betrays Jesus and goes and hangs himself. One guy ran away naked when Jesus was arrested. Thomas doubts the resurrection until he physically sees the Lord. And there are more examples, right? Who in their right mind, though, think about this, would have made the first person to see the risen Savior a former demon-possessed woman? A prostitute. Plus, at least five other women were the first to see the tomb. Now, not only is this embarrassing, <laughs> what were the men doing? They were hiding behind closed doors in the upper room <laughs> or wherever they were. <laughs> but, but the point is, in that society, a, a woman's testimony was not highly valued. And I believe also that her testimony w- was not admissible in court. So why would you write something, these embarrassing details, unless they were true? If you're going to try to start a religion or philosophy or gain a following, it makes no sense for the Gospels to record these things unless they actually happened. So Luke's account of Christ and the church, Luke chapter 1, the first four verses. First, we know Luke was Paul's personal physician, traveled with him. He was imprisoned for a time. Uh, Early in church history, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts were joined together as one book with two volumes. But now we have Luke, and now we have the Book of Acts. So Luke begins his Gospel by describing his purpose and his expertise. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all the things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things which you were instructed. And that is my prayer for you today, wherever you're at, going through the trials of life, being bombarded because you believe in Christ and with the culture and the anti-Christian forces coming against you, come against us, particularly in America, but around the world. Verse 4, Luke 1, 4, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. The gospel. A witness uh, simply means a person who tells the truth about Jesus Christ. The Greek word means one who dies for his faith because that was commonly the price of witnessing or testifying to the resurrection. So we need to remember these things. I want to mention some of the early dating of the Gospels to you guys. Um, this is this is really good. Um, yeah, one thing people say, I've heard people say this, they wrongly claim that the New Testament or the Bible is written hundreds of years after the events actually happened, right? The New Testament. Hundreds of years if that after they actually happened, if they happened at all. The book of Acts, for example, had to be written prior to 70 A.D. Do you know that? Do you know why? Well, you go, well, that's a, kind of an odd, you know, uh, time, 70 A.D. Because there is no mention... No mention of one of the greatest, not greatest in a good way, events in history, and that would be the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. No mention of that. That's like putting together an account of the history of New York City and not ever mentioning 9-11, the Twin Towers. So it happened. These books were written before 70 AD. Let's go back to 45, which was about uh, roughly 10 years after Jesus' resurrection. Mark wrote his gospel between 45 and 50. I'll, I'll put these in today's podcast post, by the way. Luke writes his gospel between 50 and 53. Within a couple years, Paul quotes Luke, okay, 
Then in 57 to 60, Luke writes the book of Acts. And between 61 and 65 A.D., the deaths of James, Peter, and Paul. Then came the siege of Jerusalem between 67 and 70 A.D., and the temple desecrated and destroyed, left in rubble at 70 A.D., in 70 A.D. So Mark wrote his gospel, Luke wrote his gospel, Paul quotes Luke, Luke writes the book of Acts. This all happened before 70 A.D. Now tell me, that is approximately 35 years after the resurrection, would there be st- people still alive that remembered that? The, yes, eyewitnesses to Jesus that were still alive when the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D.? Yes, they would still have been around. So when someone says, oh, those books were written hundreds of years after the events, how could they remember? Remember, they were written down, documented, in Luke's case, meticulously, and then copied and passed around. Very important that the churches built their foundation on the truth of the gospel. Um, and, one, and also some of the traditions, too, at that time, they were passed down. Luke said in 22, verse 19 and 20, and he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. That was Luke 22, verse 19 and 20. And uh, Luke wrote that between 50 and 53 AD. Now, here's what Paul said about anywhere from one to three years after. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He will return, friends. Jesus is coming back. More assurance of the hope we have in the resurrection. We'll talk more about the gospel on Stand Up For The Truth when we come back. If you want more info on the topics of today's show, then visit StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, back to David Fiorazzo. We're talking about the assurance of the resurrection, and I want to share a quote before we get back to God's Word. And we are going next to Acts chapter 3. Um, According to Old Testament scholar, a man named Gleason Archer, he said, As I have dealt with one apparent discrepancy after another and have studied the alleged contradictions between the biblical record and the evidence of linguistics, archaeology, or science, my confidence in the trustworthiness of Scripture has been repeatedly verified and strengthened by the discovery that almost every problem in Scripture that has ever been discovered by man from ancient times until now has been dealt with in a completely satisfactory manner by the biblical text itself or else by objective archaeological information. We'll put that in today's post. His name is Gleason Archer. And now to Acts chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, let's go back to some of those eyewitnesses we mentioned in our first segment. Look at the beginning of the book of Acts. If you're in chapter 3, flip back to chapter 1. And it says, Luke writes, The former account I made, O Theophilus. What was that former account? The Gospel of Luke. The former account I made of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, 
and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. One point in verse 3 there, he presented himself alive after his suffering. What did that mean? The, The crucifixion, the beatings, the torture, the dying on the cross, after his suffering, by many infallible proofs. Wow! Could that language be any stronger? Verse 6, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So the verb restore shows, interesting, that the disciples were still expecting maybe a political, physical kingdom. The noun Israel there shows that they were expecting a national kingdom. And when they said, Lord, are you at this time? Now, at this time, they, they really meant this time. It suggests they were expecting its immediate establishment now that the Lord had been victorious over the grave. How did Jesus respond? Acts uh, chapter 1, verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but... You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So before we turn uh, and look at the fulfilled prophecy, meaning the return of Christ, and I've got a bunch of fulfilled prophecies, God willing, we'll have time to talk about before the end of the hour, which is coming upon us shortly. Let's look at four things real quick that are reasonable. If you're reasoning this, if you want evidence, if you want to just look at the facts and what we have from secular historians to the gospel writers and those accounts of eyewitnesses and everything else, let's look at four things that are reasonable to believe about Jesus. Number one, Jesus truly did die on the cross. A couple points. The Roman soldiers would not have allowed Jesus to survive because they were ordered to execute him. Number two, the soldiers didn't break Jesus' legs. That's an interesting point, and that's a prophetic thing. Uh, His legs will not be, his bones will not be broken. Though they were out of joint, Isaiah tells us, they would not be broken. He had to break the, they uh, broke the legs of the other two criminals. John saw blood, and water coming from Jesus' side. Also, the living Jesus does not show up anywhere else in history. So it proved that he did die, and then when he resurrected, then he showed himself. And then finally, the Bible offered an eyewitness, and in fact, more than that, many eyewitnesses to verify the death. Remember that Joseph of Arimathea went to Pontius Pilate and said, can I take the body of Jesus and anoint it and bury it? And Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. And the Roman centurion was right there confirming it. Yes, he is dead. So basically, you had someone testifying there who was not any part of the disciples or any part of the soon-to-be Christian faith, any his followers, saying, yes, they confirmed the death. Number two, the, the apostles didn't imagine the resurrection. First of all, There's no such thing as a group hallucination. Hundreds saw him at the same time, it says in 1 Corinthians 15. Hundreds. And we don't know the exact number that saw him in the book of Acts chapter 1 when he was taken up before them and the cloud appeared. We don't know, but there's no such thing as a group vision or hallucination where everybody saw the same thing and it wasn't true. No such thing. Next, the corpse was never produced, which we mentioned earlier. Just get the body. Produce the body. Just stop Christianity in its tracks. Never happened. They couldn't. The apostles claimed to be eyewitnesses. So they didn't imagine the resurrection. And Two more points. The resurrection is not merely a legend. First, there was not enough time for the legend to develop. Second, the first... Witnesses were women, and this would have been seen as unreliable, as we mentioned earlier. Finally, the apostles were not lying about the resurrection because they could not have removed the body. There were guards, two different places, I believe, in the Gospels. One is Matthew, where it says the guards went into the city and reported what happened. 
So remember, it was more than one. It wasn't just one man sitting outside the tomb. So they could not have removed the body. Locals would have known about it. (laughs) Are you kidding? Try to get a body from the tomb into someone's house or bring it to the upper room or whatever. Did you think someone would have seen them carrying a body? Anyway, um, they had no motive. They had, what was their motive? They only suffered for the claim. So back to Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Jesus just told them about the Holy Spirit and said, You will be my witnesses. Verse 9. Ready? Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, he went up. Behold, two men stood by them in white. Also, they said, Men of Galilee. So the angel said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Probably with their jaws dropped. This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. This is a big clue. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, or the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. So we just read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. And the cloud mentioned in verse 9, what is that? It's a visible reminder that God's glory was present as the followers watched the risen Lord, the ascension of Jesus. So think about this, the Mount of Olives, very interesting clue there. That's where Jesus is going to come back from because they just said, the angel said, this same Jesus is going to return the same way you saw him go. In fact, Zechariah 14.4 says this, In that day, when he returns, in other words, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two, from east to west, making a very large valley. In about 593 B.C., Ezekiel recorded this vision. After, in Ezekiel 43, First four verses. I'll put all these scriptures in today's podcast post, by the way. Afterward, he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate, which faces toward the east. So be encouraged by the historical and prophetic evidence in God's word. We only know a fraction of what Jesus did and taught, but many have died to advance the faith. They did not recant. Many eyewitnesses have testified. But remember, that eastern gate, that's a big clue because within um, five centuries before the birth of Christ, the prophet Daniel predicted, remember on Palm Sunday when Jesus came in, they would call that uh, the triumphal entry? The week before his crucifixion, Jesus came from the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley and entered Jerusalem through the eastern gate, the gate facing the east, riding on a donkey. And Daniel predicted this exact event would take place. He also gave us the very date, Palm Sunday, that Messiah would enter Jerusalem as king. That's Daniel 9.25 where Jesus, the Messiah, allowed people to worship him publicly for the first time. There's so much more, but we're, we're running out of time. But let me just rattle through some fulfilled prophecies. And we'll put this in today's post as well. There's going to be a lot of notes. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem of a virgin. He will be called Emmanuel. He will live in Nazareth. He will be a prophet like Moses. Enter Jerusalem triumphantly, riding on a donkey, Zechariah 9.9. He will be rejected by his own people. He will be betrayed by one of his followers, another specific prophecy, ready, for 30 pieces of silver. The Messiah will be mocked, taunted, spit upon, severely beaten, flogged. Look at Psalm 22, look at Isaiah 50, look at Isaiah 53.5 and the Gospels. He will be tried and condemned to die by crucifixion. His hands and his side will be pierced. His garments will be divided by casting lots. These are prophecies fulfilled by Jesus, but his bones will not be broken. 
The Messiah will bear the sins of many. He will pray for those who kill him. He will suffer with sinners, die with criminals. These are all predictions, prophecies. He will be buried with or by a rich man. The Messiah will be raised from the dead. He will make his enemies a footstool for his feet. He will be exalted and will sit at God's right hand. Remember that verse we started things off with? This hope we have is an anchor to our soul that holds us during these times that we live in now. We live every moment in the light of the resurrection. Remember uh, Mary and Martha, when Jesus went to see them, and he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He said, do you believe this? He who believes in me will never die. And hopefully we can say, as John eleven twenty seven, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. We live because of this faith, because of this truth, because of the hope and the resurrection. We are joyful because we live now and know that we will live again. We are reverent because we will appear before him a holy God. We are holy ourselves because of his righteousness, not our own, because we know that we will be one day in the presence of the living God. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, 52, and we will wrap this up. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I hope you're encouraged by this today. Uh, This is the truth. This is our hope. And the resurrection guarantees that as believers we will live and appear before him. We will be like him and we'll be filled with joy in his presence forever. When we come back, we'll wrap up today's show and tell you about some exciting guests next week. We're getting ready to wrap up today's show. Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpWithTheTruth.com slash donate. Now, here's David Fiorazzo. I hope you're encouraged by the gospel and the truth of the resurrection and the hope that we have. And uh, we've got some exciting guests coming up next week. We've got Mike Gendron. Uh, proclaiming the gospel. If you have a Catholic family member or friend or a co-worker, we're going to give you some definite, definite some uh, scriptures that you can use to share with them. Rebecca Kiesling conceived in rape, and she's got a pro-life story to tell. Tony Garule from Radical Truth. He'll be with us Wednesday. Thursday, Dr. Andy Woods is back with us talking about the coming kingdom and what is kingdom now theology. How is that changing the focus of the church. We wrap it up Friday with Jay Siegert, The Starting Point Project. David Fiorazzo for Crash Connell, thank you so much for tuning in. God bless you. Stay in the word and keep speaking the truth about things that matter. See you next time.